Good morning, Hope Bible Church. I think I need to, oh, and turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think I may need to reintroduce myself. There might be someone new here this morning, or perhaps you've been on a mission trip, or maybe you've been on vacation for the last six weeks. Uh, but I'm Dave Doyle. Uh, I am the newest staff pastor here at Hope Bible Church. You know, during the interview process, the pastors asked me a question. And the question was, what are your greatest ministry passions? What really drives your heart in ministry? And it was an easy answer for me. There were three things. First and foremost, spiritual ministry development. That is to train men to be spiritual leaders within their own churches. Secondly, ministry development, to come alongside of ministry leaders to help lead, guide, and resource them for a strategic and coordinated effort to make, to mobilize, and to send out warriors to Great Commission ministries. And then thirdly, adult education, the teaching of God's Word and theology and Bible so that each of us grows as disciples to know the Lord. And so this morning, it's pretty simple. I'm going to get right to the point. I'd like to speak to you this morning out of 2 Timothy chapter 2 about the great commitment. Take a look then at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the same entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is Paul's command to a young pastor, to Timothy, in which he is commanding him to spend his time, engage his time, to train men in his own local church. You know, Jesus gave us the Great Commission. That is to go into all the world and make disciples, to baptize them, and then to train and teach them to observe everything that he commanded us. And Jesus also gave the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, every single Christian is to do the great commandment. We're all to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every single Christian is to do the Great Commission, as we were encouraged to do last week, to go and make disciples through evangelism, to train others, and then help them to mobilize for Christian ministry. But how does the church, through the ages, deal with the fact that as individuals come in the church and then assemble in a place like this, how does the church together corporately keep the vision alive to keep the Great Commission the main point. How do we do it corporately? We know individually we are disciples, but God has always, in his wisdom, used the church to continue that vision. And it is through the development of the next series of spiritual leaders. Hey, we all know leadership is everything in the home, in the church, and in government. 
uh, in the home, if there's not good leadership, then bad stuff happens. Some of your children end up being Las Vegas Raider fans. <laughs> we know that when there's bad leadership in government, nations fall. And we know that that's what happens in the church. God has made it his plan that in the church, to keep the church focused together corporately on the mission of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, it is going to need leaders in each age. And so that's our text before us. That is the reason that we're looking at this today. How does the church keep this going? It is through the Great Commitment. What do I mean by the Great Commitment? Simply this, to guard in our lifetime the gospel message and the great content of biblical doctrine, and to secure it to the future generations by training faithful men to do the same. Let me read that one more time. To guard in our lifetime the gospel message and the great content of biblical doctrine, and to secure it to future generations by training faithful men to do the same. Great commission, make disciples. The great commandment to mature those disciples to love God and love their neighbor. The great commitment to mobilize disciples to be leaders of disciple makers. How do we as a church continue? By seeing an unbroken chain of leadership development. Our church just celebrated 25 years of God's faithfulness two weeks ago. But as we look to the next 25 years, so that we don't become a monument, but we continue to be a movement of God, then we must secure the future leaders of this church first. It's kind of like being on an airplane and you hear this. Should the cap and pressure fall in an unlikely event of that, and if you have little children with you, make sure that you put your mask on first and then assist them. You know, when I first started flying, I thought that was pretty cheesy and a little bit kind of selfish. But it's really for the fact that if you pass out, they have no hope. This passage is one of those passages. If we don't secure the future leaders of this church, the oxygen in the room theologically is going to go away. And so as we look at this, look again with me at the text. Paul says to a young pastor, Timothy, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, it's the idea of leaving a legacy and passing it on like a baton. It's pretty simple. Maybe a couple of illustrations might be of help as we get our head around it. Uh, I'm reminded of a man named Randy Pausch. Now, some of you know that name. You might even know his story. Uh, Randy was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And during his tenure there, they had a special annual event called the Last Lecture. And it was a hypothetical experience. So a professor would be asked to speak, and the hypothetical position was this. If this was the last time you were ever going to address the faculty and the student body, what would you say? 
But before Randy spoke at that event, he found out that he had stage four pancreatic cancer. And so when he gave his last lecture to those 400 people, it was his last lecture. He spoke for over an hour about a very interesting topic among adults. And he said, I'm here to speak about how to fulfill your childhood dreams. And at the very end of his talk, he said, I did a head fake on you. I really didn't come to speak to you, but I came to have this recorded so that my children, when they're old enough, will see this video. Guys, that's the idea of a legacy moved forward for another generation in which it's placed in their hands to take forward. You know, I had the unique opportunity with my own father, John Doyle, of receiving his last lecture. Um, my dad came to faith when he was 58 years old, by God's grace. But then later in life, he got Alzheimer's. And as that disease began to ravage his mind, we had an interesting conversation. He said, David, I'm losing my mind. That's a really weird place to be. And he said to me, I need to tell you some things before I completely lose my mind. And so a couple days later, we went on a batting, we went on a, a baseball field by a batting cage. And my dad said this to me, he said, David, I know you're thinking about a lot of things in life, but you need to know this. You're a theologian and you're a pastor. That's what God made you. And you need to train men in theology and you need to train men in ministry. Now, I was in my 20s at that point. And so I didn't say this to my dad because out of deference for him. But at the moment, I was thinking these things. So I'm never going to get to play for the Red Sox. I'm never going to own a Candy Apple Red 65 Mustang. I said, David, that's what God made you to do. And then he asked me a favor. He said, there's something I want you to work on. And I said, yes, sir, what is it? He said, I want you, oh, and I should say this, my dad knows <clears throat> and knew that only God can save people. But he said, I want you to do everything you can to get your brother John into the kingdom of God. You know what that feels like. You have brothers and sisters who need to know Christ. And God's goodness and his kindness, three years after my father died, my brother came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The book that we have in front of us then, 2 Timothy 2, it's Paul's last lecture. It's Paul's last lecture. Uh, this is the 13th book of the 13 books that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's the year 65 AD, and Paul is in prison awaiting his final sentencing, and in a, in a short time he will be killed under Nero. And Paul is now in this book writing his last lecture to a young man. And there's a problem. There's a problem with handing this forward. And there's a problem in our day with doing it too. The problem is there's outside pressure, inside pressure. And this young man has a shaky hand when he reaches out to receive the baton. You see, basically, at the end of the day, Paul was not just handing it in a perfect environment, but he was handing it to someone who was going to struggle to take it. Uh, the outside pressure was the Nero 
persecutions. And at that point, they were killing Christians. In fact, they were killing pastors. And secondly, inside in Ephesus, where this church is, heresy had broken out. Timothy is dealing with a group of men who are false teachers within his own church. And then thirdly, excuse me, as I said, Timothy has a shaky hand. In chapter 1, Paul had said, Timothy, I know about your tears. I know that you're afraid. I know that you're struggling to be a leader in that church. Timothy, fan into flame the fire that once was in your heart for ministry. And he said, Timothy, I know that you're timid. I know that you're afraid. I know you're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. But Timothy, I am handing you the baton. I'm going off the scene. And you are the man that I need to take it. And here's what Paul said at the end of chapter 1. Timothy, everyone else in Asia has left me. Now, he's, of course, not talking about Singapore or Korea or Japan. He's talking about what we know as Western Turkey, which was the province of Asia at that time. But Paul is saying to Timothy, you are the last faithful man. It's perhaps the same size, but to say between Baltimore and Washington and out towards Western Maryland, to get a letter that says, Hope Bible Church, you are the last faithful church. And the apostle has written to us and said, I need you to take the baton of leadership and develop the next leaders for the next generation. And that's what Timothy was facing. Timothy feels overwhelmed. He feels underpowered. The pressure is mounting from within and from without. And that's when we get to verse 1 again. And we have to look at not just the problem, but the power that God has given to pass the baton. Would you take a look again at verse 1 with me? You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, in light of this context, in light of the fact that you're the only last guy, in light of the fact that you're afraid, and I am passing this baton to you, you, emphatic, therefore, given the circumstances, you must be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the problem. How do Christian pastors and Christian elders pass on the faith to other men? Is it by being a hero of the faith? Is it by being someone who's like, man, we're just strong? No, wonderfully, Paul has given a word here to be strong, which is a present passive imperative. I did it. I used my first Greek term at Hope Bible Church. (laughs) What does that mean? It's in the present. That means right now and a continuing thing. You need to have this strength. It's in the imperative. Timothy, you must have this happen to you. But it's in the passive voice. What does that mean? Timothy, not you be strong, but Timothy, you allow the strength of the grace of Jesus Christ to overwhelm you so that you are strong. It's outside of Timothy's ability. It's outside of our ability. And gentlemen, it's going to be outside of your ability to be a spiritual leader for Christ in this church. So what does it mean to be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ? 
Well, if you're thinking this, you might think that grace is always the unmerited favor of God. That's what we often think grace is. It's the unmerited favor of God. But here, Paul's not talking about unmerited favor. He's talking about grace in a different sense. He's talking about grace as God's enablement. We know that Paul makes a distinction on many occasions. For example, Paul says, I worked harder than any other apostle by the grace of God. Paul didn't work harder by just thinking about God's mercy of the cross. But rather, there's an enabling power of God that we call grace. Grace sufficient for you, Paul calls it on another occasion. What is this grace? It's an enablement to desire to do God's will, to be empowered to do God's will. It takes you beyond yourself so that you can accomplish God's work. And Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you have to be strong, not in yourself, but in a grace that comes from outside of yourself, an empowerment from God that's going to get you to do what he wants you to do. But you cannot do this on your own. Paul also says that we should work for God according to the measure of grace that you've been given. What does that even mean? Well, look, we know that there are some people who are gifted more like five measures of grace, and some people are gifted like ten. We know in Corinthians where God gives gifts as he wishes, and he also gives the grace to do them. There are people who have the grace to do a lot of work in evangelism or a lot of work in certain areas, and then others of us have less of that grace. But what we have to do is be faithful to the amount of grace that we've been given, the measure of grace that we've been given. So if you're a five measures of grace person, don't try to be a 10 measures of grace person and teach every Sunday school or be at every Bible study. Because what will happen? You will get mad at God. God, you didn't show up. I tried to serve you. Well, I didn't make you for that. I didn't give you the grace to do that. But if you're a 10 measures person in an area and you only use five of it, then you're quenching the spirit. And so again, back to the point of this, Paul is saying in order to do Christian ministry and any man in this room who desires to be involved in spiritual leadership, you cannot do this by yourself. You must have the grace of God. In fact, in James, it says God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. Now think of it, if you only think of grace as unmerited favor, it can't be in that passage because you have to be humble to receive it. That wouldn't be merited, it would be, merit, it would be merited, not unmerited. So God gives grace for his work. So the problem is, outside pressure, inside pressure, Timothy's shaky hand. The power to do this is the grace of God from Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish his means. So how does the process go? How is it that we are to train leaders in this generation? Let's take a look at verse 2. Paul says, the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men. There are two things. We have to have a content to pass on, and we have to have the commitment to do it. Very simply, the content is the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Now, see, I grew up Roman Catholic. And so in Roman Catholicism, they had a thing called the oral tradition. What was that? The oral tradition was basically this idea. 
couple of apostles before they died met with a couple of guys who were going to be popes. And they said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to give you some secret knowledge orally, just you and me in this room, okay? And you're going to use it later to be a pope, okay? And then none of us can get that knowledge. It's not in the Bible. It's drop-down secret knowledge to the Catholic world. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, is he? He says to Timothy, the things which you heard from me among many witnesses, it was public. The things from, that you heard from me personally, publicly, and that they were preached among the church. Paul is saying the content that you are to pass on is the gospel. And then presumably, at least 20 books of the Bible were written, or New Testament were written by this point in 65 AD. Uh, three of the Gospels, all 13 of Paul's works, one of Peter's works, the book of Acts was already written. There's 19 or 20 books that were considered Scripture by the New Testament church by 65 AD. What Paul is saying is, you have heard apostolic preaching. You have heard the Word of God. You have a mini-canon being given to you. And Timothy, take that and give it to faithful men who will be able to do the same also. And so what were they supposed to do with it? They were supposed to commit it, to entrust it to faithful men. So what does that mean? What does entrusting or committing mean? Well, in essence, the word just simply means to lay a charge at one's feet, to deposit, to lay it down before another. It had a banking idea that you would deposit it and gain interest. What Timothy is being told to do is take these words of Scripture and theology and the Christian faith and pass them and trust them to men who will indeed be able to teach others also. This Greek word is used in the same sense in Luke 23, and it says this, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Same Greek word, commit, entrust. It's a sacred trust to be given. So how do we do that at Hope Bible Church? How are we to train men at Hope Bible Church, as Paul is saying? I don't know. Just kidding. <laughs> I think there's some basic things. Stay with me on this. How does any church, but in particular Hope Bible Church, how do we get our heads around how men are supposed to be trained? It's one thing for Paul to say, entrust this to men, get it down the line, pass it on. And we're all like, amen. What does that look like educationally? What does that look like in the life of our church? What does it look like in the context of the gifts that we have here? I want to refresh your holy minds about three or four things. First of all, it's the refreshing your mind about the way Jesus trained men. How should we start? The way Jesus trained guys. Number two, the Apostle Paul. How did he train men for ministry? Thirdly, a look at the early church in a very quick way. How did they train men for ministry? And then finally, to take a look at some considerations of our current church. And finally, how do we choose faithful men from this congregation? So first of all, Jesus' example. What did Jesus do to train men? He had a three-part ministry. He had about three years of public ministry in which the first four or five months are come and see. He was making disciples. He was inviting men and women to come to him by faith and believe. 
But then Jesus took about a year. If you've ever looked at the three-year ministry of Jesus, or three and a half, he took about a year then to mature that group of people and simply preach this message. Come and become fishers of men. Come follow me. And so he brought some to himself. He taught them. But then after that, you know what he did the last 18 months? He took 12. He still preached on occasions to the larger crowd. The last 18 months of his ministry was training the 12 for the next part of the worldwide evangelism. What did he do with them? He took three years overall with those men. He taught them scripturally. He sent them out on missions. He discipled sometimes one-on-one, like with Peter or in a group. And he had gospel math going on. He had 5,000 that he preached to. He had 120 who were in the upper room, which is essentially his congregation. He had 70 who were going out on mission trips. We know we had 35 groups of two. We had 12, which he took aside the last 18 months, and he said, I'm training you to reach the many. But even among them, he had three, didn't he? He had Peter, James, and John, of course, who were the main guys that he took aside to train. Now, that caused a lot of friction, so I want to stop right here. This is a really fun message because we can all say, amen. Train men. Make the future bright. This will be great in our church because it will continue what we've already been doing. But let me say this. It's going to cause friction if we do it Jesus' way. And here's why. Because Jesus' strategy was to spend time with a few to prepare them to minister to the many. If your pastors spend the time with only a few to reach the many, it seems like they're not good shepherds. If they spend time training a few men to become other shepherds and spend a bulk of their time doing that, it can seem like in a congregation, hey, these guys don't care about me. They're just like, ranchers. They're not shepherds. But that is God's strategy to raise up more shepherds and not have just one or two shepherds to deal with it. I know at the church that I just came from in California, we had 1,500 people. We had 11 elders. At some point, you say, how are we going to give an account for every single person in this room? We have to raise up more shepherds. And that's what we did. So the Great Commission that Jesus has given to us is to make disciples. But the Great Commitment is to raise up disciple makers. Jesus spent time with these men. He ate with them. They attended synagogue together. They learned to pray. They watched Jesus minister. They received a final commission. Jesus died for them. He handpicked the men and trained them. And as I said, he spent time with a few to reach the many. Let's take a look at Paul's example then really quickly. What was Paul doing? Do you know that Paul had 20 people on his travel team? That's really cool. If you look throughout through the New Testament, you'll find 20 different people who Paul talks about and says, hey, I want you to go here and do this. Or how's it going on over there? Uh, He had Tychicus and he had Titus and he had Timothy and he had Luke and he had Aquila and Priscilla. He sent that couple after he would establish a church, he would send them to help establish more of the fellowship within that church in smaller environments. Paul was discipling. He wrote these three books, Timothy 1, Timothy 2, Titus, to young pastors 
so that they would be trained for ministry. Paul took men, trained them, and put them into ministry. You know, think about church history. Uh, Jesus died, was buried, rose again about 33 AD. Paul is about to go off the scene in 65 AD. But the last apostle to die is going to be John, about 95 or 96, as you know. And when John dies, a man named Polycarp, who he had influenced, becomes a key figure in church history going into the second century and a martyr. And then Polycarp had a great influence on a man named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was the first Christian church father who dealt with this Gnosticism thing, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip. And in the second century, he wrote five books against heresies to protect the Christian faith from the first wave of cults that began to happen in the second century. Jesus, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus. So what about our current context in making and raising up spiritual leaders within our own church? On a Sunday morning on this campus, we have about 450 to 500 people, depending on the particular Sunday. We have three pastors. We have many very good deacons and other spiritual leaders in this church. We have new members joining us all the time. And we have Hebrews 13 saying, that the pastors of this church will give an account to the Lord Jesus for every person who attends. Guys, that is the solemn point in my own ministry. I do not want to stand before the Lord Jesus and say, and we have some great programs, or our worship service was full. I need to be able to stand there and say, we we accounted for every single person who regularly attended our church. And so that is the call to men in this church to go beyond being disciple makers, but to being shepherds of shepherds, to be men who join us in accounting for the souls of the people sitting next to you. And guys, the pandemic has had to instruct us on the issue of, is this church ready to decentralize for the rest of its existence? If persecution or pandemics or whatever it is comes this way in which this church decentralizes and never meets again in this, audit, in this sanctuary, can the, every man in this room take 10 people and become their pastor? That's why we need to develop spiritual leaders. We're not simply looking to make elders. We're looking for spiritual leaders of men who can account for people's souls and who can lead others to lead others. So how do we do that? We do that by having faithful men chosen. So if you're a man here this morning, and I'll kind of wind this down with a few comments, and you're like, okay, Dave, I, I get it. In fact, I, maybe my heart's been stirring in that direction for more training. What do I do now? What do I do after this message? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, we are joyfully announcing to you today the launch of our spiritual leadership program uh, beginning this fall in September 2022, a three-year spiritual leadership program for men who desire to be in spiritual leadership in this church. Here, here. Amen. 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 Each one of you men who is here today, who is a member, that is, you've gone through the formal membership process, and you've been attending for at least a year here, 
we would encourage you to apply for the program. You're like, well, what's the program all about? It costs a lot of money. I can't explain it all right now. <laughs> but each of you will receive an email this afternoon after 4 o'clock, because I want you to go home and think about it. But each of you will receive an email that has a link to an online application, has a full description of the spiritual leadership program, and then the opportunity to get in touch with us to ask more questions. But I'm going to answer a few questions before you leave, and here we go. What is this program? It's a three-year spiritual leadership program to train men, so it lays a biblical foundation for a lifetime of spiritual leadership. Who is this program for? It's for men who desire to lead others spiritually, not just make disciples, but make disciple makers. You have to be a member of this church, currently in HBC serving, not necessarily leading. If you're married, your wife has to be 100% on board. You have to be in agreement with our doctrinal statement, and you have to have a clear commitment to doing the work and passing an application process, an entrance exam, and paying $30,000. <laughs> what kind of courses are taught? All that information is coming to you. How are they taught in a Socratic method as opposed to a lecture method? We want to know. I, I believe that men who love the Lord and go to church often have been in their churches for many years, have believe all the doctrines, but have never been on the spot where they have to prove them, define them, defend them, and demonstrate them. And that's what this program will do for you. It's a mini-seminary experience given to the men of our church in a way that will prepare you. And when you say, well, I'm already in spiritual leadership, have you ever wanted to be trained even deeper? This is that program for you. What's it like? It's casual, it's Christ-centered, it's joyful, it's serious-minded, it's intense, it's mind-blowing, it's demanding, it's stretching, it's exacting, it's exhausting, it's eye-opening, it's brotherly, it's accountable, there's no place to hide. If you're on the spot, you're exposed, and you're encouraged and prepared. So what are the desired outcomes? I don't want to be an elder at this point in my life. That's not what I'm asking about. We want to develop your character and your competency so that you can lead people spiritually and lead groups of people. But some of you will desire to be ministry directors, makers, disciples, counselors, flock group leaders. But many of you men will think, I believe that God's called me to eldership or vocational pastoring or missionary or church planter. This is a great way to get there. When does it meet? At night. <laughs> In a secret place that you only get to find out about later. What's the workload like? Depends on the week and depends on the man, but at least 10 hours a week, if not a lot more. You have time for that? Depends on if you believe that God is calling you to spiritual leadership. Who are the instructors? Myself. My plan is to be there every night for three years unless providentially hindered. That's the way it rolls. And then our other pastors to join us for different nights in the, along the way. So how much is this going to cost me, Dave? Those typically cost $1,500 to $3,000 for a church program a year. The answer is it's free. It's free for all men who are accepted into the program. The cost of all your meals, your materials, and your textbooks are a small price to pay for the strategic investment in hope's future accomplished through raising up biblically qualified men. Every textbook, all your stuff, it's all given to you. It's a free seminary, guys. But it's not supposed to just fill your head. It's supposed to make you shepherds. How do I apply for the program? Again, you'll receive an application online today with a link. 
prayerfully consider whether God might be asking you to lead his people. And as he did to Peter at the beach, if you love me, feed my sheep. Let me pray. Father, we are not adequate for these things. But that's why Paul has told Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I pray for the men of our church, those men that you're already working in their lives, that those men who need to step up, who need to be part of this, that you would cause them to understand that and do it. And I pray that for the good of this church, the glory of the gospel, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the next wave of leaders for the next 25 years of this church would emerge this fall. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.